Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Chris Hood about his debut literary novel, set in a dystopian post-pandemic world. The Revivalists is intimate, funny, and at times shocking. It takes place on the road, but it has only the dystopian setting in common with Cormac McCarthy's The Road. While Cormac's characters are shadow figures on a stage devoid of meaning, our narrator, Bill, and Penelope, his wife, seem like people we know, or even reflections of ourselves. Their concerns and reactions serve as a mirror for us to imagine ourselves in a future where 70% of the population died and the conveniences of modern life have mostly vanished. Bill, a psychologist, and his wife, a genius fund manager, experienced different stages of their marriage before the pandemic, including initial intimacy, followed by the challenges of raising a willful daughter. Bill, easygoing, maybe almost lethargic at times, is conflict-averse, but Penelope, a black woman who has fought for everything she's ever had, is determined to steer her daughter towards the right direction in life. When a pandemic separates the parents and the daughter on different sides of the continent, and they learn through the ham radio that their daughter is joining a dangerous cult, the revivalists, Penelope is galvanized into action, insistent that they must come to the rescue. There ensues an odyssey through the USA and encounters with idealists and opportunists of varying ideologies, as well as the merely lonely or loony. A love story about two people with different dispositions, as well as a story about the damaged people they come into contact with, The Revivalist is, in the end, a meditation on how far we're willing to go for someone we love, as well as an exploration of what happens when the fabric of society unravels. So, I'm going to have Chris on the show, and he's going to start off with a short reading from his book before we head into the questions. Hello, Chris. Uh, You're on the show now. Terrific. Very excited to be here. Well, thanks. So uh, we talked about starting off with a reading. So uh, go ahead. Microphone's yours, so to speak. All right. Terrific. This is uh, the beginning of the second chapter. Um, 
and uh, our main character, Bill, uh, is a psychologist, um, and so that's his profession before the world ends, and then he starts uh, to realize it might still be. Hannah's voice over the radio, tearing our life from its moorings and setting us off on our journey, came on a Tuesday in September, a fact I knew because I'd spent the whole summer seeing clients again. After the long, dateless winter, calendars were once again relevant. It sounds absurd, but it turned out nothing demanded a therapeutic response more than apocalypse. I'd always idly assumed that therapy lived at the peak of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a final stage of civilization, but I'd been wrong. It was actually down at the bottom, in the mess, with food and water and breath. It was human connection, without which, what was the point? Yeah, and your book is a lot about that, and about how humans relate to each other. Mm. And it's also about white privilege in a certain sense. Uh, it's something mm-hmm. that our character Bill thinks about a lot because his wife is black and Jim isn't. Jim, uh, Bill has a tendency to drift. Uh, he hasn't mm-hmm. had to prove himself. And Penelope is fiercely focused on her career, at least until the apocalypse. Does uh, Penelope's background and personality make her more prepared to face a post-apocalyptic future, or perhaps in some ways less prepared? I I think uh, it's a great question. I think um, that's one of the shifts that takes place over the novel, that at the beginning it makes her less prepared um, because she's more focused on things that are no longer present. Um, And so she sort of disappears into herself for a while. But then once she gets a mission again, once she has a sense of purpose again, rescuing her daughter, um, then I think it really is her energy and drive that carries the book forward Mm -hmm. and carries them across the country. Um, And those two things, I think, are really linked you know, that uh, the book gets a lot of its energy from her and from her um, sort of fierce resolve um, to find her daughter again and bring her family together again. It also seems that perhaps Bill, being from a privileged group, is a little soft and his wife is not quite as naive as he is in some ways. I I think so. I mean, I think that that certainly can be a part of um, uh, white privilege. Um, and then I think as well, he's in, you know, he's a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the really fun things about the book for me was um portraying a marriage of people that really love one another and have their challenges, um, but um, are very different um, in terms of the way they think about the world, and that that is what makes them fascinating to one another. Yeah, yeah. They are, in a sense, opposites attract. Well, while Uh while we're on a subject, uh, exploration 
and presentation of minority perspectives, whether that be neurodiversity, LGBTQ, or another marginalized racial or cultural group, is almost a rigor this year for publishing house acquisitions, at least in sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, you're a writing teacher, and writing those marginalized voices can be a minefield, especially for a novice writer. What do you tell your students about the subject? I think as a white writer and a white person, I think one of the most important things is to to do the work of going on your own racial identity journey and figuring out what race means and being, um, I think, really being willing to learn. Um, uh, so I think that that's really important. Um, and I think, you know, anytime you sit down to write, you're creating characters who are different from you in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I thought about, you know, it's almost in retrospect, I think some as I was doing it, but, um, I think w- when writing about something like race, for me, it was really important, um, to focus on the external in the sense that when I was writing about their marriage, mostly they're not fighting about race. They're fighting about the stuff that married people fight about. Mm-hmm. Um, and where race would come in is, is through other people and the racism that they face in the world. Um, so when they're, you know, in a, in a, um, uh, rest area by a highway and somebody says, oh, the black lady's your wife. And if she were white, that wouldn't have been a question. There would have been an assumption that they were married. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they move across the country, um, they're constantly being faced by other people's assumptions about who they are, um, which in an ironic way is useful um, for Bill in the end as he's <laughs> trying to rescue his daughter. Yes, it is useful. Well, uh, should a beginning writer try to make their manuscript more inclusive, or is it better that they kind of stick with what they know, at least with the first few attempts? What do you think? I think, you know, one of the, one of the things I'm really interested in is that when we say race, Oftentimes what people are really saying is black or people of color Mm -hmm. and race is something we all have. Um, And in a lot of ways, you know, teaching slavery, for example, that's a that's actually the study of whiteness. That's the study of power dynamics. That's the study of the creation of this idea of whiteness. Um, which hadn't really existed before and how it was used to oppress other people. So I think, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is like white writers writing about whiteness um, rather than assuming it to be normativity. Um, so an example of that, I get really irked when a novel races or gives race only for characters of color. <laughs> That's right? true, right? So that we'll get like, um, you know, oh, he was a black man, 
right? Or she was an Indian woman. And I'm like, the assumption being that if I don't give you a race, then they're just regular people. It's the default. Uh And I'm like, no, that's not. So one of the things I try to do throughout the book is, you know, he'll say, oh, this was a white guy. Um, because, you know, we all have race. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, it's messy, it's complicated, um, but it's also present in everything we write. It's just the privilege of a lot of white writers that they can sort of pretend that they're not going to deal with race. That's what you meant. Now I understand when you said you were exploring uh, your own journey. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Well, your novel begins with Jim, uh, with Bill and Penelope's decision to rescue their daughter in California, but then diverges into a lot of backstory about the origins of the pandemic and how Bill and Penelope survive. It's something an inexperienced writer might not have been able to pull off. What did you do to keep the readers invested past the initial premise? That's, I think that's a really fun problem to tackle, which is um, how do you do the world building? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to, it's much easier to just do it in dumps, right? Now I will give you a bunch of information mm-hmm. or now they will look at a television and the television <laughs> will tell all the relevant information that you need, which, um, you know, rings really false. Um, so what I tried to do um, is to really make it be a history of them. And that in learning about them and their marriage and how they survived, we learn about the world. Um, so anytime I've had a few sentences that sort of are straying away from them and into the more general, I've got a little alarm bell going off in the back of my head. Um, and I think the same thing is true for their trip across the country, which could easily become like sort of episodes, mm-hmm. right? Like, now is there a wacky encounter with this? And now is there a wacky encounter with that? Now is there a frightening encounter with this? And what hopefully keeps it from feeling that way is that they're going across the country, but also they're on a journey as a couple um, right. toward rapprochement and, and coming back together. And um, so that's how I do it. Um, because I think... You know, to me, a book should be fun to read, (laughs) you know, and and you should feel connected with the characters and want to follow a story. You know, so I'm trying on some level, really, at a very basic level, just to, like, tell a story that's fun to read. Well, one of the readers commented it was a very immersive journey, and... Uh, thank you for actually getting into the technical detail. I think that's just it. You um, gave a couple of sentences about how the world is, but then you always explained how Bill reacts or mm-hmm. 
what happened with Penelope when this happened or what Bill did when that happened. So it makes yep. the story seem very individual and uh, people keep relating to the main characters. I mean, that's one of, I think, um, that's something I'm, I'm really fascinated by is how that relationship between the like private and individual and the global, mm-hmm. um, which like, you know, is true in a whole lot of different ways, right? Like when I, you know, drive, one of our cars is electric and the other one is gas. And when I drive the gas car, or even when I drive the electric car, right, I'm using power and that has an impact on the climate, mm-hmm. right? It's a tiny little bit, but those relationships, I think, are really interesting. Well, how does the pandemic, I mean, I guess it's hard to globalize this, but how it affects people privately, not just Bill Mm -hmm. and Penelope, but other people, it seems freeing in a sense because it takes people out of their prior conditions and let's them mm. focus on essential things. In some cases, that could be closeness and relationships, but in other cases, very different. Yeah, there's a moment in the book where they're driving, and Penelope actually says, there's two types of people after the apocalypse. There's people that drive their same old car because it's their car and they want mm-hmm. normalcy. And then there's people that are like, I'm going to go take, you know, this Ferrari um, that belongs to people that are now dead. Now I have a Ferrari. That's cool. Um, So I think, you know, my sense is I haven't read a ton of dystopian fiction, but there's a way that if everything's just too horrible, it sort of flattens human emotion Mm-hmm. Right. Where like everybody's just sort of in the grime and, you know, it's kill or be killed and everybody's just um, it's sort of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. <laughs> exactly. Seems seems totally. Um, I, I don't know. It, it takes it. I guess flattens is the best word I have for it, but. Um, So I was just really interested in like, you know, so if there were this pandemic and all these people died, it would leave behind this total cross section. Yeah. And there would be like, it wouldn't just be like warlords. It would be all these regular people. And, and that's why I loved the idea when it came to me of that he would reopen his practice. Cause why wouldn't he see clients? Right. Like, and, um, so there would be the, that darkness and the sort of, you know, nature red and tooth and claw, but also mm-hmm. there would be, you know, just people trying to sort of figure out what's important to them and how to, how to go on. And by the way, for people who haven't read this yet, there is a very entertaining, or at least it was to me, progression of vehicles. I'm not really a car person, but just (laughs) every vehicle you can basically imagine 
uh, is out there. And at some point, Bill and Penelope have to switch to a different vehicle and then again to a very different one. That was kind of fun. It was fun to write. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I used Google Maps a lot Mm -hmm. um, as I was writing. Um, So there's a lot of spots in the book where, you know, you sort of think, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's sort of an invented place, but it's actually real. And, like, I use Street View to, like, go all the way around the town. And so I could say, oh, that's where the house is that I made up, you know. Yeah. Um, So it's fun to sort of see what happens next. Um, Well, they have various encounters on the road uh, with people ranging from eccentric to pitiful to dangerous I noticed what seemed to be a difference in the way genders approached strangers. Women seemed more likely to be idealistic and inclusive, even uh, the one that really craved intimacy, (laughs) Uh, while Mm -hmm. men seemed more likely to fall into paramilitary thinking, which focuses on the other as a possible threat to be overcome. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I, that's a really cool observation, one I'd, I'd never really sort of fully articulated to myself. Um, I mean, I think it makes sense, though, given how we raise people to think about gender. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's sort of fascinating um, studies, psychological studies, you know, about like how people treat babies, um, where the gender is totally unclear, right? It just looks like a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you tell people it's a girl baby, they're like, oh, you're so cute. I just want to hold you and cuddle me, cuddle you. And then if you tell them it's a boy baby, they're like throwing it in the air and like, look at you and look <laughs> at you. You're such a, you know, it's like it starts so early. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, I'm, I think it's, there is a sort of depressing quality to how, um, poisonous a lot of our politics is and a lot of male politicians, um, and that kind of thinking, that us, them thinking. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's there. Um, I hadn't sort of been aware how I was doing that exactly in a book, but that's one of the super fun things about writing a book is that then people will say, oh, I noticed that you did this. And I'm like, wow, I did that. That's so cool. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, in one sense, it's fun to read reviews, uh, even sometimes when they're not the nicest, just to find out, oh, someone thought that. Yes, I can see that. Yep. Yep. So Bill has a point in the novel where he thinks, somewhere in the middle of the country, the nature of our mission had changed. We were still going after Hannah. We were still on a rescue mission. But it was unclear who was being rescued. Maybe we were the ones who needed help. 
Why is he having these thoughts? I think that comes back to my um, my sense of being a parent and a father myself, um, which is the most important thing in the world to me. Um, and it gives me a huge amount of my purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, just the sense that, like, sure, we're on this trip to rescue Hannah, but also Hannah's a grown woman at this point. She is. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they have an encounter with a, um, a pothead earlier in the novel who, you know, hopefully comes across as being a little ridiculous, but also kind of right. Um, and, you know, he asks these questions about like, are you really going after your daughter? Are you going after some image of your daughter you used to have? And, um, I think in some ways the trip is less about Hannah and more about them. Um, I think Hannah would certainly say that. Um, and, uh, and I think there's sort of a realization as the, the trip goes on that like, they're not going to go back home. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. And that really, this is just another journey as a family. All three of them. Yeah, because Hannah has not begged them for help, nor is uh-huh. she necessarily the kind of person who's going to be swept away uh, by a cult, although she is involved. Uh-huh. So it isn't clear how much she needs to be rescued and how much Bill and Penelope need a purpose. Yep. And how much help they can actually offer. That's true. Right? I mean, like, they don't have, like, an army with them. They don't, <laughs> you know, they're sort of setting off with this idea that somehow we can be together. But I won't spoil it, but Mm-mm. there's sort of a realization at the end that, like, maybe that just means joining our daughter. Maybe mm-hmm. that just means letting go of our past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, that is certainly how I understand the world, that there's a lot of things that are important to me, my teaching, my writing, um, but it's just so obvious that the most important thing in the world is my family. Um, and and that's certainly where the book came from. Yeah. Uh, kind of a little thing I noticed about the journeys It's noteworthy that despite the lack of consumer goods to acquire, there is still a desire to own things or seize territory. We've got one character who's accumulated boxes and boxes of macaroni and cheese and gold, which uh, it's questionable how that's going to be set in a use. And then on the wasteland of the southwestern desert, where you wouldn't be able to grow anything or do much, Although you can mine, there are groups engaged in armed conflict over territory and also in other parts of the U.S. Do you think that the desire to own things, whether immediately useful or not, is something that's just baked into human beings or is it a peculiarity of our culture? 
I mean, for sure, with this is capitalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, you know, our whole system depends on people buying things, right? right? And I'm on this podcast in part because what a wonderful conversation we're having, and this is fun, and in part because I want people to buy the book. Yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, like, I'm culpable, too. Um, but I think... You know, there's a deeper way that, um, you know, religion isn't really the opiate of the masses anymore. It's consumerism is the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. right? That's like true. that it, that we, um, you know, there's comfort in that, right? Like instead of confronting sort of my powerlessness, I can say, well, if I just have enough gold, Mm-hmm. Um, if I just have enough of this, if I just have enough of that, um, and, and there's truth to that, right? There's a character who's like getting insulin and driving it back to his people because like there are people who need insulin. Yeah. He was doing right? something was, useful. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's, there, there are objects that you need to acquire because, they are just essential for human life for mm-hmm. some people. Um, but then there's lots of care, you know, like the, the gold mining in the Southwestern desert, you know, it's like this just tremendous expense of, of human lives and yep. energy for something that's so totally useless. That was my thinking. It feels like a, you know, maybe it's an apt, um, sort of judgment of late stage capitalism. Yeah. Hey, let, let's just like dig all these resources up because we can and, and because, yeah, we can, because we must yeah. definitely need it if we're capable of doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, taking a life of another person is presented as the final loss of innocence. And one of the characters in the book, uh, one of the characters that we follow is eventually forced into killing someone else. There's a strong theme of familial love and respect and friendship even underlying your work. And the decision to have one of the characters we're invested in kill someone else, although it's a defensive decision, introduces a bleaker element. Did you struggle with the decision to do that? So that's what I knew was going to happen at the end. Um, I I sort of think about the writing of a novel more generally, not just a travel novel like this, but mm-hmm. any novel as sort of like, I know I'm going to get to here and here, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. Um, and I knew early on that that was going to be a sort of, finale for the book mm-hmm. um and i think what's again what's interesting to me is um that in this like i don't know like for example in the in the uh, in the u.s you know the gun culture is just so awful and mm-hmm. it's presented as this as being about like not wanting to be killed um, and like you have a right to self-defense and all this stuff. But I'm like, it seems to me that like (laughs) 
just behind that in terms of human awfulness is taking another life. Um, and so that felt like sort of this, um, you know, Macbeth calls it the river of blood. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, maybe that's my nod to the world is a different place after the apocalypse, um, that you can't get away from this, um, the whole book. That's kind of what it felt like because at the beginning, uh, you know, Bill's a good liberal, like many people who are probably listening to the show. I think fantasy tends to have a lot of liberals who like to read it. And he, at the beginning, he carries around a gun, but he never has any bullets in it. And Mm -hmm. it almost seemed, it almost seemed like a liberal rebuke, like, Mm. guys, but I I knew you wouldn't be like that because of the rest of the novel. So I'm thinking, what, Mm -hmm. what process is it that led him to like, well, heck yeah, we do need to be armed to protect ourselves. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as the trip goes on, you know, their sort of innocence is getting washed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ultimately it, it sort of is a decision about his family. Um, and, um, you know, it felt... I think as I was writing it, I mean, the, the sort of end of the book, which, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see when you get there, but it, it felt like hopefully I'd sort of earned the drama of the ending. Um, cause I, it felt dramatic as I was writing it, but I also felt like, all right, I think we've gotten here. Um, and, um, and it's interesting as well because I think it's a book where, the the threat of violence is almost omnipresent through the book, mm-hmm. but we actually see very little violence. There really, we see a couple of acts of violence, um, but for the most part, no. Um, they're aware of threats, um, but when they actually see partway through the book um, a human life getting taken, it's really shocking and mm-hmm. awful for them. Yeah. Especially since um, it's so, so random in that case. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, I think that's an element of this world, um, but certainly not the only one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people have to read and, and see what they think when they get to the <laughs> index. Well, what are you working on these days, Chris? Um, so I'm, I'm working on a lot of, uh, you know, working on this book. I'm about to head out West for a little reading tour and Mm -hmm. uh, I've got other, other events planned. And so, um, and I'm, (laughs) I'm still teaching, so I still have my high school classes. So, uh, life is pretty busy at the moment, but I also am working on the next novel, um, and really excited about it. Um, it's, uh. I think going to be similar in terms of a big sweeping scope, but also very focused on um, 
the main character and her family and um and the decisions that she makes mm-hmm. so we're a long way away um i've come to understand how uh how long the publishing process <laughs> it's is it's very but, long um but you know, I'm a writer, and I, I love living in another world mm-hmm. um, in addition to the one that, you know, this one. So it's exciting. Well, how do we stay up to date and know when your next book is coming out or other things? Yeah, so my website, um, ChristopherMHood.com, is a great place. I'm on Twitter. um uh, CM Hood with underscores between the CM and the Hood, um, and uh, I'm uh, I'm on Facebook as well, and I'm trying to be on Instagram. Um, <laughs> my students would laugh at me and say that I'm not really on Instagram, but I'm trying to figure out how I uh, do all the social media, um, and I have a good reads presence as well. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is. Um, you know, if you're listening to this and you read the book and like it, um, I I love book clubs. I love, I think, just anybody who's reading, that's wonderful. Um, I'm happy to visit book clubs. Um, I will happily zoom in, and I can also do book plates and sign them for the members of your club. So uh, any chance I get to connect with readers, I think, is a really wonderful opportunity and I'm just thrilled that people are reading and enjoying my book. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you. This was such a pleasure. I'm really grateful to you. For me, too. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to creative writing teacher and novelist Chris Hood about the revivalists. Join me next month when Aden Polidorus and I talk about his new fantasy, Bone Weaver, set in an alternate world based on Russian and Slavic mythology. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. <laughs>